Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So, over the past few weeks, we have been looking at this whole idea of the grand storyline of the Bible. And we've been looking at God's kingdom. So what is God's kingdom? God's people and God's place under God's rule and God's blessing. And over the past few weeks, we've seen how that's been expressed through covenants. There were seven covenants, right? The covenant of creation or the covenant of works that Adam failed to keep. The covenant of redemption where God promised to bring a redeemer. The covenant with Abraham. The covenant with Noah first. Third one, Noah. Then Abraham then Mosaic Covenant, Moses, the Ten Commandments, then the Davidic Covenant, the Covenant with David, and then the New Covenant, which culminated in the whole idea of Jesus coming. And so what we've been doing for the past month or so is we've been trying to combine systematic theology with biblical theology. And in the first night that we met, I introduced these two themes. Most of you are probably familiar with systematic theology. Whether you know it by that name or not, it's more the specific doctrines of the faith, the the things that you would study when you would study doctrine. Biblical theology, on the other hand, is what we've been looking at the past few weeks, the big storyline, the grand storyline. So what I want to do is I want to see or to explain or show you guys tonight how these two disciplines, systematic theology and biblical theology, come together in how we do evangelism. Okay, so let's make this real practical. For the past few weeks, we've been very theological. We've been talking about how the big storyline fits together. And so we're at the point now where it's like, okay, so what? What do I do with it? How do I share my faith? How do I witness? How do I share the gospel? How do I evangelize? And so what I want to do tonight is I want to show you two models. That one model, it's called the story. This is actually a tract that we use sometimes, and I will pass them out. If you want to keep them, you can. Leave one with me. But I want to show you this, this particular tract takes the biblical theological model of what we've been talking about and tells the gospel from the issue of story. So it starts with creation, and then it starts with the fall, and then it starts with salvation, and then it ends with God promising to to restore everything. So when you think about the gospel as story, there's basically four big movements that people use when they share their faith. So if you were to tell the gospel as a story, you'd start with creation, talk about how God created the world to be perfect, God created the world for us to have peace with Him, to live with Him, everything was perfect, God created us to glorify Him, He created a perfect environment, spend a lot of time talking about how everything started with creation, and then you'd go to the fall. But Adam and Eve, who were in the garden, chose to disobey God, they ate the fruit from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, and they brought sin into the world, and now there's brokenness, and creation's messed up, and so you, you begin to tell the story of the fall. But then you say God had a plan to rescue human beings that had messed things up, and so He sent Jesus 
as the sacrifice to rescue us. And then eventually there's going to be a new creation. All the bad stuff that we see in the world, all the pain, all the suffering, all the wars, the genocide, the rape, the suicides, the crime, the cancer, everything that we see bad in the world will come to an end in the new creation when God brings it full circle and and brings in a new creation. So this type, this track right here focuses more on the story. Now, I'm not saying one's wrong or one's right. This is just a different way to share the gospel, more telling the story, okay? You guys okay with that? Okay, so there's nothing wrong with this track. We use this track. It's just a different way of getting the message out more from a story. Those four movements, creation, fall, redemption, new creation, okay? That's biblical theology. Now, the gospel as doctrine has four components, but it focuses more on the doctrine, not so much on the story, but on the doctrine. And so the four parts of the gospel as doctrine would be, you'd start with the doctrine of God. Who is God? God is holy. God is powerful. God is sovereign. God is just. God is righteous. God cannot allow sin into his heaven. And you spend a long time talking about a theology of God. Then you'd spend time talking about man. What would you say about man? Man is sinful. Man is fallen. Man is depraved. Man is separated from God. We were created in the image of God, but we've fallen. We're sinners. We have not measured up to God's standards. We are sinners. And then you talk about Christ. You'd say Jesus has come and he was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again. He's coming back. You'd spend a lot of time talking about Jesus. And then you'd ask for a response. If you believe this, or does this make sense to you, you need to repent and believe the gospel. Okay? So the story, the story type of evangelism is more the big picture. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. The, the doctrine way is a little bit more specific. Man, God, Christ response. And then here's a tract. Did I already? Where, oh. This is a tract that we use. It's called How Good Are You? This focuses more on doctrine as opposed to the story. And so you look at this little track, and it begins with the Ten Commandments on a scale of 1 to 10. How good are you? And you have people kind of walk through the checklist, check the laws that you've broken. And you kind of walk a person through and say, okay, have you broken number one? Yeah. Have you broken number two? You shall not make for yourself an idol. And then you kind of go down the list and say, you know, um, if being a good person were to get you into heaven, there's no way you can get into heaven. And then you go on to, sin, we're sinners, we've broken God's law, sin brings judgment, the final judgment, uh, Jesus' death on the cross, the empty tomb, and then it talks about repentance and faith. This track is more of a doctrinal approach to sharing your faith, whereas the story is more of a story approach. Now, neither one of these are, I think both of them are good. It just depends on who you're sharing it with. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to give you guys tools in your toolbox to be able to share your faith with different types of people in different types of contexts but with the same gospel message. So let me just ask you a question. Does the gospel message change? No. Or should it not? It shouldn't change, right? The gospel message does not change. Does how we share it sometimes change? Do, is everybody like a clone of one another where everybody's exactly the same? 
Do different people have different needs? Are different people in different places? Everybody's got a different way of looking at the world, right? Worldview. And so what I want to do tonight is talk about this whole idea of how do we share the gospel in our current culture. And so I show you these two as examples to say some people like the story way. Some people like more of the doctrinal way. Neither one of them is necessarily good or bad. I think they're both good. It just depends on which one you want to use. I would say this, though. If all you do is tell the story and you don't get to some of the doctrine, I think you're not gone far enough. Now, the danger of the story method is sometimes people that still tell the story, they get so big into the big story that they never make it down to the person that you have personally offended God. One of the dangers of the story method is that they look at sin entering in the world and causing the world to be bad, but they never personalize it and say, you are a sinner and you're separated from God and you need to repent and believe. So if you want to do the big story, just make sure you get it down to telling a person that they are specifically a sinner and they need salvation. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to use a big word, contextualization of the unchanging gospel message. Now, don't be scared off by the term contextualization. What is context? Your surroundings, where where you live, who you are. Okay. Are each of you at the same job? Do each of you have the same family? Do each of you have the same friends? Are each of you in the same town? No. Some of you are. Each of you have your own context. Your family, your job, your neighborhood your workplace, your environment. And so how you share the gospel may be different than how somebody else shares the gospel depending on your context. Now, the gospel doesn't change. It's the same gospel. But how you present it and how you figure out different people's worldviews and how you contextualize that, that's what I'm going to help us do tonight. So this may be new ground for you tonight, but I'm trying to give you guys some real practical, here's how you can share the gospel with different types of people in different types of contexts, okay? So the question is, how do we faithfully communicate the unchanging gospel in different contexts with people of differing worldviews with different needs? Now, what I want to do to begin with is I want to use Paul as an example because we have a biblical example in the book of Acts where Paul shared the same gospel, but he had different context and he shared it in a little different way depending on who his audience is. So let's just let's set a biblical case this morning with Paul and his example, and we're going to kind of go just briefly through the book of Acts and look at some of his audiences, okay? We're not going to read the entire passage, but I'm just going to kind of show you all the different audiences Paul has to deal with and how he basically shares the gospel depending on who his audience is. So the first time we see Paul really kind of giving a message is in Acts 13, which is Paul's first missionary journey. The church in Antioch has sent Paul and Barnabas off as missionaries, and they end up going to a place called Antioch of Pisidia. And so let's pick up at Acts chapter 13, 13 through 43. And again, we're not going to read all of this, but I I want to show you that Paul's audience here are Bible-believing Jews. They're not Christians yet, but they're Jews who believe the Old Testament. So let's, before we even read this, what do you think Paul is going to appeal to as a way to get them to understand the gospel? 
the Old Testament. Is there a starting ground already with these people's worldview? Do they believe in the one God? Do they believe in the God of Israel? Do they believe the promises of the Old Testament? So they're, they're, a, long, they're, a, long way off, they're, they're a long way on here of understanding the gospel. What do they not understand, though? That Jesus is the Messiah who fulfilled all of that. So Paul doesn't have to do a lot of background with these people. They have a lot of Christian, quote-unquote, Bible knowledge. So let me just talk about our culture today. Do you come across some people that have a lot of Bible knowledge? They may not be Christians, but they may, have, they may believe in God of the Bible. They may have know a little bit of Bible verses. They may live in a somewhat grew up in church. Do you have to, like, start way back from the beginning, or do you have some common ground when you start witnessing to them, at least some common ground? Sometimes, okay. So let's just kind of see what Paul does here. Um, in Acts, uh, let's just pick up in uh, verse 15. Acts 13, 15. After the reading from the law and the prophets, okay, so what are they reading from? The law and the prophet, Old Testament, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, motioning with his hands, and said, Where are they? They are in the Jewish church. Paul is going to share the gospel among a churched culture. I didn't say Christian, a churched culture. And what does he say? Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. What is Paul doing here? He's giving them an Old Testament lesson of things they would understand. He's saying... God chose us as the Israelites. God took us to the wilderness. God delivered us out of the wilderness. And then he goes all the way down. And then look at verse um, 26. Brother, son of the family of Abraham, and these among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us as his children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. So what does Paul do here? Paul takes an audience who has somewhat of a biblical background and he uses the Bible from the Old Testament, a common ground they already have, but then he brings it up to Jesus is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament promises, believe in Jesus. Okay? So let's just stop and talk about Sterling in northeastern Colorado. Do we have a churched culture? Let's, let's define some terms here. I'm going to put three church, I'm going to put three, I'm going to put three terms up here. Churched, unchurched, and I'm going to put dechurched. And I'm going to define those terms, okay? A churched culture would be these people, they go to church, they believe the Bible. They understand the facts of the gospel. 
They may even give head knowledge. They may come to church every Sunday and kind of assent to what Christianity is, but they aren't converted. Yes? No, they don't have to attend church. They just, they just don't, they don't have a problem with Christianity. They're not hostile to Christianity. They understand Jesus. You don't have to, you don't have to start from the very beginning with them. They have the vocabulary. Does that make sense? Right. Well, yeah, I'm not going. I'm not using that. I'm not using those mission terms. I'm just talking about Northeastern Colorado the way I perceive it. Is that fair? Okay, so this is Sean. It's a Sean's. Yeah, I'm teaching, so I'm giving the definitions. Okay, so church. I don't want to confuse people with other missions because we have too we we know too much from like being church from different backgrounds that we bring stuff. Yeah, we're too church. Okay. Okay, the unchurched the unchurched are people that don't go to church. They don't know the gospel. They don't know the categories. They don't know the Bible verses. If you were to ask them who Moses is, they'd have no idea. They are unchurched. They don't go to church. They don't know the gospel. They they and again, these are all, I'm talking, these are all lost people, okay? So none of these, these aren't Christians. These are all lost people. But there are lost people within your churches, right? There's a lot of lost people within church. They may attend faithfully, but they still, they haven't been born again. Unchurched means that they have never grown up going to church. Their parents never took them to church. They've never darkened the door of a church, maybe for a wedding or a funeral. They don't know the Bible stories. They don't know the gospel. They're totally unchurched. Now, the de-churched, these are people that went to church as kids, maybe were forced to go to Catholic church or forced to go to Lutheran church or forced to go to whatever church, and they grew up going to catechism, they grew up going to VBS, they grew up with the Bible stories, but now as adults, they don't darken the door of the church, and they've lost a lot of that knowledge, and they're living like the world. Does that make sense? So there's a big difference between the unchurched and the de-churched. The unchurched don't know anything. The de-churched know it. They've just forgotten and have chosen not to come back to church. Now, all of these are hard to reach. And here in northeastern Colorado, you've got all three of these. But we've got a very, what I would consider a God and country culture. Would you guys agree with that? We've got a lot of, this is a very patriotic God and country, church-going <laughs> Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Let's be good citizens, people here in northeastern Colorado. Does that necessarily mean that they're a Christian? No. It just means that they are somewhat good citizens. They're moral. They believe, they believe in the institution of church as a good thing. And you should go to church. But as far as having that relationship with Christ where they've repented and believed the gospel and have truly been born again, they don't have that. Okay, so when Paul is talking to this audience here, these are what I would consider a church group of people. They're Bible-believing Jews who believe their Old Testament, and they're in the synagogue, and they're in church. They just have not trusted Christ. Okay, now let's look at the next one. The very next place Paul goes to in chapter 14, he goes to peasant, uneducated, superstitious pagans who were polytheistic. Yes,
Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. They didn't. They didn't believe the scriptures. Yeah, you're right. Okay, so exactly, they've got the word, but they don't trust it. Now, in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas go to Lystra, and as they begin to start talking, I'm going to kind of paraphrase. The people begin to worship them as Greek gods, and they want to start sacrificing to them. And Paul and Barnabas, Paul's basically appalled. <laughs> Let's just pick up in uh, verse 14, Acts 14:14. Uh, 14, 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, even... With these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifices to them. Where does Paul have to start with this group of pagan superstitious polytheists? Creation. He's got to do the story. All right. You don't have no knowledge of the Old Testament. You have no knowledge of the Creator God. You're worshiping all these Greek gods. Let's go back to the very beginning. There's one God, and He's the Creator God, and He created all things, and He actually created you, and He created the rain and the crops, and and so... Paul has to go way back to the very beginning to even establish a concept of who God is. Now, in our culture, we may have to go all the way back to the beginning with people and and establish who God is. Because do we live in a culture where there's false views of God? Many different gods, God however you want to believe, God, goddesses. these These are uneducated, superstitious pagans. No history of the Bible. They lived in a Greek culture that had no Jewish synagogues. They had not gone to Bible school. They had not gone to VBS. They, they had not sat under teaching. They believed in all these Greek gods and goddesses. And so Paul has to, give, has to give a different message, same gospel, but has to do it in a different way. He has to start with story to, to, to go all the way back to the beginning because they don't have that common ground like he had in the synagogue. Okay, let's go to the next group that he has to deal with. On Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17... Paul is in Athens, and he has to deal with the sophisticated, intellectual, philosophical pagans. Not the uneducated pagans that were kind of superstitious. These are the intelligentsia. These are the intellectuals. These are the, these are the Harvard people, the, those that you know, kind of hang out in academia, and they sit around talking about philosophy. And this is where Paul has the issue with the unknown God. So let's just kind of look. Let's start in verse uh, 16. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. And Paul is waiting for for Timothy and Silas to join him. And so he's in Athens, kind of walking around, taking in the view of the city. And he comes across these idols, and it it provokes him. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Let's just stop right there. Paul saw the idolatry in the city, and it bothered him. I think it bothered him in two ways. It stirred his heart in anger. But I think it also stirred his heart in sadness. You can kind of have a combination of sadness and anger. Anger that there's all these idols, but sadness that people are, 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 are worshiping these idols. And he's walking around taking in all the idolatry in Athens. Athens was the, the that's where Aristotle and, and Socrates and all those um, sophisticated intellectuals and, phil, and philosophers came from. And so here, here we go, verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. 
Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, that's Mars Hill, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So, verse 22, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. So how does he start? I notice that you're spiritual people. You're a very religious, spiritual group of people. I've been walking around and looking at all of your, all of your idols. You're, you're very spiritual. You're very religious. Let's talk about that. I mean, he, he, he adapts to their culture. He's not among the Jewish synagogue people. He's not among pagan polytheistic peasants. He's among the intelligentsia. So Paul's going to adapt his message to, to fit that context. And notice what he does. Verse 23, For as I passed along and observed these objects of, of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. So they had this unknown God. And here's why they had an unknown God. They worshipped all these deities. And sometimes they would worship the sea god, hoping they'd have good sea voyages. They'd worship the fertility god, hoping that they would have children. They worshipped the, the agricultural god, hoping they'd have good crops. But they were in fear that there may be some god out there that they missed. And if they missed that god and he got angry, things would go bad. So to cover their tracks, let's just have the, god, the unknown god out there. And so Paul takes that and says, listen... You've set up an unknown God. There, there's a God that you, that you think is out there. Let me tell you who that real God is, and that's what Paul does. Look at verse, um, well, verse 23. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is as, as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, how is he going to start? The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as if though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods, the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Where does Paul start here? Back with creation, story. And then he starts to bring in their culture. Look at verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. Do you guys have a little footnote down there? Epimenides of Crete? That's a secular poet. Paul is educated enough to be able to quote who they respect. Not that Paul agrees with that guy, but says, look, one of your respected poets gets it, and let me pull something from culture in to show how the gospel relates to that. Now, you've got to be careful when you do that. Because some pastors and preachers spend a lot of time looking at relevant things in culture to bring in so that people will accept the message. But that's not what Paul spent his time doing. He used it as a bridge. Look at what else he says. He's even if some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. But then this is where it gets important because Paul does not balk on the gospel. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He goes right to their idolatry. You are idolaters. You're fashioning idols. You're worshiping idols. Do not worship idols. And then he gets to very pointed in verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What does Paul say? He goes to theology, doesn't he? Repent and believe because Jesus is the judge and God raised him from the dead and he's coming back. So repent and believe the gospel. Verse 32, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. There's three responses to Paul's message. And they all start with C, good pastoral alliteration. Where's my... Okay, so what's the first response? They mocked. Okay, so some people showed contempt to the message. They hated it. They mocked him. We don't like what you're saying. We're going to mock you. We're going to hate you. We're going to... This is crazy. Some people were what? We want to hear you. Again, they're curious. Some people were curious. And then some people got converted. So I would submit to you that a lot of times you may have these three responses when you share the gospel. Some people are just going to flat out hate what you say and call you an idiot and they're going to mock you and they say, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Some people are going to be curious. You know, this has piqued my interest. I have no idea. This is new. Let's meet again and talk about this. And some people will be like, I want to trust Jesus right now. And so you've got all three responses. And Paul has all three right there. But in the context, he's with the sophisticated, intellectual, philosophical pagans. So, so far in Acts, we've seen three different contexts, right? Bible-believing Jews, peasant, uneducated, superstitious pagans, and sophisticated, philosophical pagans. He addresses Christian elders in Acts chapter 20. We won't go there, but he gives a message to elders. Now, do you think that's a totally different context? Hopefully, elders are saved. (laughs) But he's preaching the same gospel to elders. Then in Acts chapter 21, he preaches to a hostile Jewish mob. You ever seen those Ray Comfort on the street, like stand up and do street preaching where people are like yelling and spitting at you? There's some context where it may be hostile. You stand up and there's people yelling at you. It's not a calm situation. It's hostile. You get in a confrontation. And then at the very end of Acts, the very last chapters, he's influencing the governing elite. He's before Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. So he's talking to like, it would be our equivalent of governors, senators, presidents, kings. And so he's going to have a different message based upon the different types of contexts he has. So from Paul, we can see biblically that he shared the same gospel, but he modified the way he presented it, not the content, the way he presented it based upon his context. So how do you do that? Because we're not Paul. Paul's masterful and could do that. How do we do that? Much of the rest of this that I'm going to give you tonight comes from a book by Tim Keller, I'm, I've read this book. I told Andrew, you need to read this book. So Andrew's reading this book. David, our missionary, has read this book. And David and I, even when I went out there this summer, we talked about a lot of this stuff. It resonated with both of us. And then even when he was back he's, you know, just a few days ago, we talked about it again. I said, I'm teaching a lot of this stuff on Wednesday night. So a lot of this stuff comes from what I've learned from this book, and I want to share with you. So it doesn't... I've modified it and put some stuff in there, but I want to, um, to show you just some, some things I think that are very helpful. D.A. Carson, 
of the Gospel Coalition back in 2010 basically gave in this article six motivations that we can possibly use when appealing to non-Christians to believe the gospel. And what I mean, what he means by motivations is this. Depending on who you're talking to, where they are in their personal life and in their worldview and, in the, and, and what their personal needs are, they may need to hear a different aspect of the gospel first to kind of resonate with them. Now, this doesn't mean that you water down the gospel and you, you leave out parts. It just means that as you're talking to someone, you may clue into the fact that they may be on this, they, they may have this need. And you may need to spend some more time on that. And he says there's basically six, six motivations that we, can, that we can think about. So I'm trying to give you this list so that when you start talking with people, when you think about people in your life, you can think about maybe the motivations that these people have to believe the gospel, that God has purposely in his sovereignty maybe wired them or prepared them for to hear the gospel. Does that make sense? The first one is this. Sometimes the appeal is to come to God out of fear of judgment, a fear of death. Some people fear death. They're afraid to die, and they're afraid of hell, and they're afraid of what's on the other side, and they just fear that. So should you shy away from that? Oh, don't worry about it. You don't have anything to fear. There's no such thing as hell. There's no such thing as judgment. Is your name Rob Bell? <laughs> yes, my name Rob Bell. There may be somebody that's really struggling with the fact that they fear they, they have this whole idea that if I die and I'm guilty, I'm going to be judged because I've done so many bad things. Now, let's turn to Acts chapter 24 and look at one of these situations where Paul confronts one of those political leaders. Acts chapter 24, 24 through 25. And he's before um, Felix. Okay. Acts 24, 25. Acts chapter 24, verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Just real briefly, what does Paul address with him? Judgment. The coming judgment. And how does Felix respond? He's alarmed. He's visibly concerned. And so one of the things that we may need to tell people if they're struggling with that is this. Romans 2, 5 through 6, because of, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render each one according to his works. And then in 2 Peter 3, 7, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. If somebody has a fear of judgment, if somebody has a fear of death, don't shy away from that and not talk about judgment and death because it could be what God is preparing in their hearts to receive the gospel with. And if you don't address that, you may be bypassing what God is preparing in their heart to need to hear. Our first reaction is to what? 
I don't want to talk about judgment. I don't want to talk about wrath, and I don't want to talk about hell. But Felix here is visibly alarmed. And so sometimes people are going to be physically and visibly alarmed when you share with them. And they may have contempt, curious, they may be converted. But there's an old Puritan saying that says this, the same sun that melts the snow also hardens the clay. Let me paraphrase that. The gospel, when it goes out, it may soften a person's heart. And they, they see their sin, and they're broken, and they're contrite, and they know they need Jesus. And they see the glory of the gospel, and they believe in Jesus. But that same gospel also may harden a person even further from the truth because they hate it, and they don't want to hear about it. The same message goes out, and we can't control how the message is received. The message goes out. Some people will receive it. Some people will hate it. But we've got to keep sharing it. So two people can hear the same the same message. Here's what would be awesome to happen in church. Oh, was there a question? Yes, go ahead. Um, I think partly because maybe we want to avoid the hardening that, or you're an idiot, I don't like what you're saying. <laughs> we, and partly because like the nice people, we tend to rush to comfort. And instead of rushing to comfort, which is enabling, yeah. you need to let someone totally feel, I mean, it's the same in counseling. If, if somebody is struggling with something, they've got to kind of hit the bottom yeah. before they come up. And if I cushion the bottom where they never hit it, mm-hmm. they're never going to change. And that's very hard if you love that person. And it, well, it's very hard even if you don't yeah. because they might come back and go, you're a horrible, hateful person. Yeah. You're not telling me what I want to hear. Let me tell you what Charles Spurgeon said one time. He said, when you share the gospel with a person, it may be like a deer that gets like shot out in the wilderness, let that deer go and die. And his point was, sometimes people need to be shot with the gospel and go out by themselves and suffer to really understand the, why, let the Spirit do the comforting. But, but there also comes a point where we've got to come in and, and give the gospel balm. Okay? Let, let's, let's talk about, yes, <laughs> It's a fine line. Yeah, it's a, there's a fine line. First Corinthians 14, this is what we want to see. This is what you'd really want to see. First um, Corinthians 14, 24 through 25, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, so an unbeliever or an outsider enters a worship service, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's what we would live for in a worship service. That somebody comes in and feels the power of conviction so heavily that we are worshiping God and God's spirit is so prevalent that they fall on their face and say, God is among you. The the worst thing would have an outsider come in and say, where's God in all of this? Yeah, what about your seeker-friendly church? Then here's the other thing too. This is something we have to remember. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 15-16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, from the other a fragrance from life to life, who is sufficient for these things. And what Paul's saying is 
It's a hard thing. Who's sufficient to go out and share the gospel knowing that we're going to smell like dung? We're going to smell like death to some people, but to other people it's going to be life. And he says that's the temptation not to go out. If you know you're going to go out and offend and be the smell of death, some people are like, well, I don't want to go through that because I want everybody to like me. So the first type of um, issue here is, is um, judgment. So there's a couple of other passages here, Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, Hebrews 10, 31. You can go, you can go listen to, look, look at those. The second one he talks about is this. Sometimes the appeal to come to God is out of desire to be released from the burdens of guilt and shame. Some people are carrying a lot of guilt and shame in their lives. They're shameful because of something that happened in their past. They're shameful of a sin that they're living in. And they have this attitude, God could never love me. John, yes. You know, just, this just occurred to me. Have you ever noticed, though, that after a while you seem to have a certain style, that that's the kind of people you seem to attract? Maybe You, know, you might be the person that attracts people that need to hear about judgment. But I've noticed, like, especially with Fred, he always seems to attract those types. Yeah. And it could be. The, and, 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 and that's why different people... Yeah. One size does not fit all here. This is just, I'm trying to give you an overview here to say God has wired us differently in our way we share the faith and God brings different people into our paths who are wired differently. And so depending on what their need is. Yeah, yeah, and so, yeah, and it's, yeah, and so some people may come. And so um, let's just turn to Galatians chapter 3 because we need to, we need to address two types of guilt. Okay, when most people come to you, when most people come to you feeling guilt, I would say it is a Psalm 51 type guilt. It's a subjective guilt because they've sinned and they feel bad about it. What happened in Psalm 51? What happened to David? He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had committed murder of Uriah. He lied and covered it up. And then Nathan the prophet comes to him and says, tells him the parable and says, you are the man. And then David weeps and he writes Psalm 51 as a way of subjectively showing that he was guilty before God and he felt it. Most people that come to you that are feeling guilty, it's a subjective, I'm feeling guilty. But there's a reason why they're feeling guilty that we need to back up to. And that's Galatians 3, 10 through 12. Let's just read this. Galatians three ten through 12 For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not out of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. There is objective guilt. They may feel guilty, and that's very important to address. But whether they feel guilty or not, if they're without Christ, are they objectively guilty? Yes. They're guilty in their sins. And so you need to address both. And so sometimes when somebody comes to you, they may just feel like, I can't get anything right. I can't ever be um, forgiven. I've sinned so bad. I'm carrying guilt. I'm carrying shame. I've got all this buildup. And you need to give them the gospel that just says what? What would you appeal to them at that point? Christ took your shame. 
Christ took your guilt. You don't have to be guilty because Christ paid for that. And you come in and share the good news of the gospel, how Christ can take away their guilt and shame. Okay? Brent. My experience, just a caveat in there, and that's that the problem is the number of people that you'll, if you're not careful, you say that to, and it's almost like um, you're the sugar daddy. You've thrown it out to them, and then they go on their merry way. I mean, they... they the number of times that I, I'll ever say anything like that to them, and then they'll say, oh, great. Well, now I have my temporary sure. um, yeah, we need indulgence. To, yeah, there, yeah, there needs to be a very, yeah, there needs to be, and you see this as a pastor a lot. Sometimes people come and want to just get something off their chest. Right. And if you say, oh, you know, and, you, and they, you're almost like a Catholic priest where they've come and they've, they've, they've gotten absolution and now they can go out and continue sinning. That's why there needs to be true repentance. But as Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, I would rather err on the side of giving them the freeness of the gospel as opposed to holding back on the gospel. I would rather be accused of, 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 a, of talking about the abuse of grace than, than not giving them grace. Because ultimately it's up to them or up to God. So, Okay, so let's keep moving. We're going we're gonna to run out of time. Some people come to God out of appreciation for the attractiveness of truth. This was the way C.S. Lewis was. C.S. Lewis was an intellectual. He was seeking truth. I want to know what truth is. I don't have guilt. I don't have shame. I don't have fear of death. I just want to know what truth is. I want to know what, if there's a truth out there. Maybe a little bit people more intellectual here, people that are seeking something true, something attractively true. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 1.18. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this. And we'll, we'll keep reading further on down. 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly. The Greek word there is moronic, really. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Some people just want to know truth. I've explored all these different belief systems. I've dabbled in this. I've dabbled in that. I want to know what is true out there. And, and, and my missionary friend David was telling me as we were driving to Colorado Springs about how Jesus is viewed sometimes, how people come to faith in, in Hinduism. Because to them, a guru is a very important person that teaches, that leads them to truth. A guru is a man that leads you to truth. And so everybody's going to find a guru that tells them the truth. So they're going to go to whichever guru helps them out. And David says the big challenge in India is to tell them that Jesus is not just a guru that tells them the truth, but he is the embodiment of truth. And once they embrace that Christ himself is truth, then they become Christians because they realize all the other gurus are just a sham. Jesus is not a guru. He's, he's, he's truth. So some people are looking for truth. And so maybe when you talk to them about the gospel, you need to talk more about how this may be more of the apologetic um, aspect of it. 
showing how Christianity is true and, and dealing more on an intellectual level. Here's another one. Sometimes people um, come to faith to satisfy unfulfilled existential longings such as a need for inner joy or peace. Some people are just looking for peace. They're looking for joy. They're looking for happiness. They cannot find it. Let's think about the woman at the well for a moment. Let's go to John chapter 4, the woman at the well. And you guys tell me, what was her situation? How many husbands did she have? She had five husbands and one she was living with. And she comes out in the middle of the day because usually women would come in the early morning when it was cool. But she comes out in the middle of the day because she's ostracized. That's the only time she can come out. But she wants this living water that Jesus says I can give you. So let's turn to verse 7. Chapter 4, John chapter 4, verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and even his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty, for I have come here to draw water. And then he goes on and on. So what, what does the woman really want? She wants that thirst to be satisfied, that living water. I want, there's something missing in my life. If, 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 if there was something right in my life, I wouldn't have five husbands. But I'm seeking something here that's going to give me joy, that's going to give me peace, that's going to give me uh, the sense of belonging, the sense of, of knowing that, um, that I'm happy. Now, you've got to be real careful here because you don't appeal to somebody to come to Christ and Christ will make them happy. Does Jesus ever promise to make you happy? No, he promises to give you joy. And there's a huge difference between joy and happiness. But some people have these existential longings for inner joy or peace. And you need to be real careful when you share the gospel with them that you, you address that need that Jesus can give that to them. But I think sometimes you can go so far to address that need that you fail to address the sin. So you got it. But Jesus does that. He keeps going on. If you read on, he addresses her sin. So you've you got to be careful how you do that. But some people just have that existential need for, for, for peace. Now, here's another motivation for, to come to Christ. Some people come to God for help with a problem. Let's look at Mark chapter 2. You remember the story of the paralytic? Jesus was preaching and his friends came in through the roof. What was his need? I need to be healed. I've got a major need here. So let's turn to Mark chapter 2. Um, I'm going to kind of paraphrase for the sake of time that they, they, they lower him down in the, in, into the um, room. There's an opening. 
Uh, verse 5, let's pick up in chapter 2, verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now, it's interesting. What did Jesus tell him? Does Jesus tell him you're healed? What does he address? Sin. Now, the guy came with the need to be healed physically, and Jesus doesn't even address that. He says, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is what I love, verse 6. Now, some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, he's reading their minds here, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So Jesus addresses both needs, doesn't he? He doesn't just heal the guy. He says, I'm going to heal you, but there's a deeper need that you have. It's a sin issue. And your sins need to be forgiven. And so some people come because, I mean, just think about it. Some people, they're at the bottom of the rope. They've hit rock bottom. They have a major need. They're desperate. And a lot of times those people are right for coming to Christ because they don't have anything else. And you need to be very very careful that we don't give them the prosperity gospel because the prosperity gospel says, hey, we can, if you just have enough faith, God will make everything better. And what we give them is a false sense of having everything be better as opposed to, yeah, Christ can help you with your problems, but your main problem first and foremost is sin, and Christ can forgive that. But yes, God can help you, but we just need to be careful how we do that. Now, here's the last one. Some people come to Christ out of a desire to be loved. There's just some people out there that crave love. And they will look for love in all the wrong places. Sounds like a song, doesn't it? Looking for love in all. Or is Eddie Murphy, looking penub for all the love. You guys don't remember those, those days. Let's go to John chapter 8. That's old Eddie Murphy from um, Saturday Night Live back in the 80s. All right, John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Um, this is the woman that was caught in the act of adultery. Now, let me just ask you. She was caught in the act of adultery. Which means that the Pharisees went in during the act of adultery, not waited till she was done, but in the act of adultery, and dragged her out. Okay, so let's look at chapter 8, verse 1. Or verse, um, yeah, well, actually, yeah, it's actually the end of 7, verse. They went east to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now nobody knows what he wrote, but one of my pastor friends, that's an older guy, his, his theory is, where's the man? Is <laughs> what Jesus wrote, but I don't, I don't know, because they didn't bring the guy out. Where's the man? He's just as guilty. He's in the act of adultery. Yeah, where's, where's so-and-so? We don't know. It just says he wrote in the sand. Verse 7, they continued to ask him. He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. 
And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Some people misquote this verse. A lot of people that want to say, don't judge. Jesus wasn't against judging. They'll bring this up and say, I don't condemn you. He he was the first stone. You know, we shouldn't be casting stones. But what does Jesus say at the very end? Go and sin no more. He he preaches repentance. But what's this woman's desire? Kind of like the woman at the well. She needs to be loved, accepted. Does Jesus love and accept you? Yes. Does he unconditionally accept you? Yes. And so we need to use all of these tools to help. Like if you're talking to somebody and you start cluing in, okay, this person's really struggling with guilt. I may need to spend more time here. Or this person has an existential longing to, to, be, to have happiness. You may need to spend more time there. This person may be dealing with fear of judgment. Spend more time there. This person may just have a problem. Spend more time there. This person may want truth. All these different things. And so just pray for the Holy Spirit to give you sensitivity to say, where is this person coming from spiritually? And how does the gospel bring into bear how I can address their specific need? That's one reason I don't like a lot of canned gospel presentations because they they teach you to memorize a canned approach. I'm not against memorizing the gospel. But you guys should have enough ammunition from the story and the theology to be able to take all of that and adapt it to a real person. Because sometimes you can can an approach to someone and, and almost treat them like a robot or a project and get it out and, so that you can get the response. And you don't take time listening to them or hearing from them or, or just praying for discernment from the Holy Spirit to determine exactly where they are. And that takes a little bit more sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, a little bit more preparation, treating them like a person, not a project. And so um, let's kind of um, shift gears here. There's two extremes. And contextualization, two extremes that you can, two ditches you can fall off. And when you try to contextualize the gospel, Tim Keller says we must be enter the culture sympathetically and respectively, similar to drilling, and confront the culture where there contradicts biblical truth, similar to blasting. Sometimes you drill, sometimes you blast. You got to be careful how you do that. You don't want to go in and blast things that may not be worthy of blasting and you may not want to go in and just drill on things that really need to be blasted so you got to be real careful okay so here's some different expressions used Um, i'm going to give you one from tim keller and i'm going to give you one from artisertia tim keller says we want to avoid cultural captivity cultural captivity is the refusal to adapt to new times and new cultures this is the church that still does 50s music still has everything's in the 50s they haven't adapted. There's nothing good or wrong about the 50s. It's just that there's been some songs in the last 50 years that maybe we could sing in church. Everybody doesn't have to wear a three-piece suit to church. Everybody doesn't have to use the King James Bible. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But cultural captivity says we are going to be, we're going to st- be stuck in our time frame and we're going to act like an anomaly because it's more pure. We're going to go back to the 50s where it was more pure. Well, let me ask you a question. Were the 50s more pure? You had racism in the 50s. Oh, yeah. If you were a black person in the 50s, was that a pure time for you? No. no. There were still laws. Okay. And the other thing he says to avoid is syncretism. Syncretism is bringing unbiblical views and practices into our Christianity. Syncretism says this. We've got the Christian message, but we've got to bring some other things from culture or from other religions into Christianity 
to make it more believable or more palpable. This happens a lot on the foreign mission field where you have people from different religions. and Christi- you, don't want to, you don't want Christianity to offend, so let's just kind of bring in some... We'll bring in some elements of Hinduism. We'll bring in some elements of Islam. We'll bring in some different elements to, to kind of make it still sound Christian, but we don't want to be totally Christian because we might offend them. So, let's, so it's like one is we're not going to change anything to tell people the gospel. The other one is we're going to totally change the gospel to what does not the gospel anymore. Okay? And Artaxerdia kind of gives it this way. Artaxerdia says cultural gluttony. Okay? Cultural gluttony is a sinful compromise with the world. That is the consequence of being missional without being theological. Cultural anorexia is the radical and decided withdrawal from the world that is the consequence of being theological without being missional. That's a good way to put it. If you're so theological that you can't relate to the culture, that's a ditch. But if you're so cultural that you lose your theology, that's a ditch. So what's the best of both worlds? Having your theology inform your missiology to where you can engage the culture, you can enter into the culture, you can share the gospel with the culture, but at the same time retain the, the truth of the gospel. You don't, you don't water it down. Okay? So let's talk a little bit about worldview here for a moment. When entering a culture or a differing worldview, whether that's your next-door neighbor, whether that's a student, whether that's your parent, whether that's a teacher, whether that's a friend, whether that's a president, when entering a different culture or a differing worldview, people will have a certain way of viewing the world. They'll have a certain way of making decisions, certain way of relating to truth claims, different ways of figuring out their existence. And I think there's three predominant categories worldwide of how people do this. Okay? The first one is this, conceptual. People make decisions and arrive at convictions through analysis and logic. This is more of an American, Western type of mentality. We make decisions through what makes the most sense logically. How many of you times if you made a decision, have you sat down and you made a pro list and you made a con list? And you weighed the pro and you weighed the con and you figured out which one was better. And you kind of got input from people out there, but it was all based upon the facts. You looked at the analysis. You looked at the cost analysis. You looked at everything. Everything was based upon logic and facts, and you just looked at everything through that lens. I'm not saying it's good or bad. Some people are just wired that way, that they have to make decisions. They view the world through logic and analysis. Other people look at it through concrete relational. People make decisions and arrive at convictions through relationships and practices. These people are likely to believe what their community believes. They're also concerned with practical living and will only believe a principle only if they see how it works. I could care less about the fact sheet. I could care less about the pros and cons. That doesn't matter to me. What do my friends think? Or I want to see somebody live it out and prove it to me to see if it really works. I won't make a decision until I see it proved out or unless all my friends are doing it. So the way they make decisions is more concrete, relational. They've got to see it in practice, and it's all about the relationships. This is more India. Other, other cultures that aren't so much based upon analysis and logic. They're based upon relationships. You've got to see it. Okay? And then there's some that are intuitional. People make decisions and arrive at convictions through insight and experience. Intuitional people find stories and narratives more convincing and mind-changing than proving propositions through reasoning. 
These type of people, they may, re- they may respond more to the story uh, way of sharing the gospel. The gospel is story. Yeah, these are more, yeah, they're, they're more through, how does this make me feel? How do I process it? I need to experience it. To, to, it it's more, they're based upon intuition and feeling. Not so much on logic, not so much upon the community. It's more, I've got to feel it myself, and I've, I've got to have the gut feeling, and I've just got to kind of sense it. Yeah. Okay. I can tell you it happens every Sunday when I preach. When I'm preaching and I'm giving doctrine, everybody, you know, some people are writing things down. When I stop and I tell a story or an illustration, everybody's, they want to hear the illustration. And then I go back to the doctrine. So you've got the people that are really engaged with the story and others that are like writing things down with the doctrine. And then who knows what the communal people, they're maybe looking around to see what their friends are doing. Or, I don't know. Yeah, they're looking at Facebook while they're doing it. They're tweeting about their worship experience. Now, here's, here's what I want to talk about for just a few moments. Let's think about how the thought process in America has changed over the past 50 years. This is very important to where we are today. Because I don't think, if, I don't think we're going to go back 50 years. We just need to understand. I'm not saying it's right what's happened. I believe it's ungodly, but it's where we, at, where we are. So we have to understand it. Former generations believed it was most important for someone to be a good person. If you asked... Somebody 50 years ago, what was the highest value? We need to be good people. Today, our values have shifted, and our cultural narrative tells us that what is the most important is to be a free person. What's the difference between being a good person and a free person? Doing whatever they want. Well, the issue is, 50 years ago, it was we want to be good upright, standing citizens that are law-abiding and whatever the school tells us, we'll obey. Whatever the government tells us, we'll, we'll somewhat obey. We want to live within the confines of what it means to be good. Today, we want to live within the confines of no confines. We want to do what makes us feel good. We want our, our highest value is free. We're not so much wanting to confine to what's good. Our highest value is whatever is the most Free. Well, whatever you want to say, my whole point is that when you look at the culture today, the, the culture today is maybe not asking the same questions that you're asking if you're from the older generation. You may be thinking, why aren't they valuing what I'm valuing? And the question is, they're, they have a totally different value system. It's freedom versus morality and goodness. And, and I don't know how you deal with that. The, the thing I think we need to do is, no matter what it is, whether their value is goodness or whether their value is freedom, both of those are an idol if they're not placed in Christ. So we need to confront the idols of our culture. Now, what I want us to do here is I want us to think about... So what I'm, what I'm trying to do here, guys, is I'm giving you some tools. You may have to go back and think about this tonight. I've given you six motivations for how people may accept the gospel, and I've given you three ways that people think. So you may have a conceptual person that's very logical that is also a truth seeker. The way that you share the gospel with them may be different than a feeler who needs to be loved. 
same gospel, but you may share it differently. You understand what I'm saying? That's why you really need to understand the best thing you can do is, is, is build relationships and ask questions. Don't be the one that talks all the time. Find out what their needs are. Find out what their deepest passions are. Find out where they're coming from. Now, what I also want us to do is give you some more, some more ammunition here. Think about the language that is used of the cross in the Bible. The different metaphors for the cross in the Bible and how these metaphors may help you be able to address a need in that person. So I'm going to give you five more tools for your toolkit and how you share the gospel, depending on how a person is relating. The Bible says that the cross is the language of the battlefield. It talks about Christ defeating the powers of evil. Okay, so if somebody is if somebody's really big into, they, they want to see the power of cross, Christ, they want to have the powers of evil defeated, um, that's something that resonates with them, you can say, you know what, the cross is where Jesus won the victory. It's a battlefield. If he, he can fight your battles, he can win your battles. It's the battlefield imagery. Other people may resonate with the language of the marketplace. Jesus paid your ransom to set you free from bondage. You're in bondage to sin. You're in slavery to sin. You're enslaved. Jesus paid to get you out of that. He purchased you out of that. His blood purchased you out of your slavery. Are you enslaved to drugs? Are you enslaved to sex? Whatever you're enslaved to, Jesus bought your freedom out of that. You can use that type of metaphor. The other metaphor is the language of exile or alienation. If a person just really feels forsaken or abandoned, Christ was forsaken or abandoned by God so that we would never have to be exiled or cast out. A person is, you know, I feel alone. I feel alienated. I feel exiled. I feel abandoned. I feel like nobody loves me. I feel like my parents have abandoned me. You can go to the gospel and say, you know what? Jesus knows exactly how you feel. He was abandoned on the cross. He was forsaken by his father because you were so important that he died for you so that you would never have to experience that forsakenness. So you can talk about the language of exile or the language of the temple. Christ makes us beautiful and holy and acceptable so that he can, we can approach God. He cleans us up. I'm dirty. I'm filthy. I'm stained. But Jesus cleans me up so that I'm acceptable. I'm presentable. He, he makes me clean. Or the other approach you can give is this, the language of the law court. Christ stands before the judge and removes our guilt by having our sins credited to him and his righteousness credited to us. You can be not guilty in the courtroom because your sins have been credited to God or Christ and Christ's righteousness has been credited to you. So, so, you know, this makes you think, guys, because you may be thinking about all the different ways when you're talking to a person, what would be the best image of the cross to use for this person? Do I go the battlefield route or do I go the ransom marketplace route do i go the alienation route or do i use a combination are they a thinker are they a feeler are they you know all these different things i'm just trying to give you some tools now let's just talk about the cultural response of the church how does the church respond to culture there are three major models that are out there right now and Tim Keller gives an overview of these and some strengths and weaknesses of many of the, of the contemporary models. And what I mean by a model is how does the church in general confront sin, evil, lostness in the culture? Okay, so let's look at the first one here real quick. 
The first one he calls the transformationist model. This sees Christians pursuing their vocation from a Christian worldview in order to change culture. An example of this would be the Christian or religious right, which sees cultural change through political activism. This movement oftentimes does not see the value of the witness of a local church and is very individualistic. It can become triumphalistic, self-righteous, and overconfident in its ability to seek cultural change. Not necessarily wrong, but this is one of the models out there saying, we can change culture through power politics. If we just vote the right people in, if we just um, you know, kind of reform society, we could change. And it doesn't necessarily see the local church being the instrument to do that. It sees the government or individual Christians influencing the government. I'm not against individual Christians influencing the government. Don't hear me wrong. Should we vote? Yes. Should we influence government? Should we speak out? Yes. But what this does, a weakness of this is it takes away the witness of the local church and puts it more outside into an individualistic, let's impact government versus let's transform through the gospel. Okay, that's, that's one way. The other one he calls is the relevance model. This characterizes many of the liberal churches who do not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, a literal hell, the exclusivity of Christ, sexual ethics, and other issues, and argue that the church needs to be relevant to the culture. This group often abandons evangelism and calling people to repent and trust in Christ and substitutes this for producing art, doing service projects, and seeking social justice. We want to transform culture, but we're not going to talk about sin. We're not going to talk about hell. We're not going to talk about judgment. We're not going to talk about repentance. We're just going to go out there, and if we just do good deeds, people will see that we're such good people, and they'll want to have what we have, and they'll just kind of get it. So our ultimate desire is to kind of blend in with culture, to be relevant to culture. Okay? Now, there's another movement out there you may not have heard of, this is called the countercultural model. This group does not see God working redemptively through cultural movements outside the church. Calls the church to avoid focusing on the culture and seeking ways to be relevant to reach it or transform it. This group sees any organized entity as unhealthy. It criticizes the Christian right. The mainline churches and the megachurches, this group focuses on getting rid of buildings, living in poverty, and not getting involved in politics and being against war. Like Shane Claiborne is a popular name if you've ever heard of him. It's called the New Monastic Movement. What is getting rid of buildings? No, no church buildings. We're just going to be. We're going to kind of have house church. We're going to live in poverty. We're not going to have organized church. We're just going to kind of go out and and just kind of we're going to, we're we're not going to really try to transform the culture through the church. We're going to withdraw so much from the culture that we're just going to seek to be so radically different that the world's going to be like, what's wrong with you? And, and want to join us because we're living in poverty and so radically different. Yeah, you want to join us? So what's the alternative? What's the alternative? Um, I, I, would, I would agree with Tim Keller that a church can be, his argument is all three of those are, are there's strengths and weaknesses in all three of those, but then he gives what I think his model, and, and I would agree with him, that you can still be a gospel-centered and missional church at the same time and still hold orthodox doctrine while impacting the culture. So let me give to you, in closing tonight, the, his marks of a missional church in the last, like, 12 minutes we have here, okay? So a missional church that's focused on the gospel, so like Emmanuel, a church that's strong with theology, strong on the gospel, we also want to impact culture, 
We want to see people get saved. We want to address the issues in our culture. He gives some marks of this. And if, let me just get through all of these just to get through them, and then, then if we have time for questions. Um, the church will need to confront society's idols and especially address how modernity makes the happiness and self-actualization of the individual into an absolute. A church needs to address idols. Every culture has an idol, multiple idols. So one of the goals of Emmanuel is we've got to have our thinking caps on and our eyes open to see what are the idols in our community that people are embracing and how do we confront those. And especially the idol of it's all about my happiness and all about me. Selfies. Yeah, self, self, yeah. Okay? So that's one of the marks. The other mark is this. It must recognize that most of our more recently formulated and popular gospel presentations will fall on deaf ears because hearers will either be openly hostile and offended or simply unable to understand the basic concepts of God, sin, and salvation. This doesn't mean that we don't share the gospel. It just means that we mean to take more work into how we share the gospel because there's going to be hostility and there's going to be ignorance. And you probably come across both. You can't just go up to someone today and say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You want to go to heaven. What may they say? What God are you talking about? I don't believe in heaven. And sure, everybody's going to heaven. Well, no, you need to repent and believe. Well, I believe in Jesus. I mean, you see what I'm saying? There's a lot of people that don't understand the categories. And so just a, what he's saying is a canned one-size-fits-all approach to evangelism that we did in the past is not going to work in this culture. We've got to be smarter and more effective in making sure that the gospel stays unchanging, but we communicate it in ways that people can understand. Okay? Number three, it will affirm that all Christians are people in mission in every area of their lives, whereby believers are thoroughly equipped by their pastors to do three things. And guys, this is where the burden is upon me. He says, the pastors of churches today need to equip their people to do three things. Number one, you need to be equipped to present a clear and bold verbal witness of the gospel in your web of relationships. Can you present a verbal witness of the gospel in your web of relationships? Number two, do you love your neighbors and do justice within the neighborhoods and cities? Are you benefiting the neighborhood? Are you seeking the good of the city? And then number three, are you integrating your faith with your work? in order to engage culture through your vocations. Some of you are called not to pastor churches or be missionaries, but to be counselors, to be salesmen, to be farmers, to be um, whatever it is. Are you, are, you, are you impacting people with the gospel in your vocation? Okay, the fourth one he says is this. It must, the church must understand itself as a servant community, a counterculture for the common good, a servant we are a servant to the community. We don't expect the community to come and serve us. We serve the community. It's countercultural in the sense that people look and say, why are you giving? Why are you serving? What makes you different? Number five, it must be in a sense porous. That is, it should expect non-believers, inquirers, and the lost to be involved in the life of the church in all areas. If we're not having lost people involved in our church, then something's wrong. In all areas, they should be coming on Sunday mornings. Lost people should be showing up in different things. It, por, what does porous mean? There's, it's holes. It's every part of the church, there's lost people infiltrating. If lost people aren't infiltrating our ranks, then something's wrong. So we need to be having lost people show up. Number six, 
it should practice Christian unity on the local level as much as possible. And we're seeing this happen in our own community with the five pastors that pray each Wednesday. I think we've seen a great sense of unity since we've started praying to where we're praying for each other and we know each other's needs and, and, and we're unified and we know we've got each other's backs and we're trying to model being unified and our churches being unified. He's saying that really when a culture comes against Christianity, the more unified you are, not just within your own church, but locally, the better witness you have. Okay, so here's my challenge as a pastor. Here's my challenge as a pastor in equipping you as the saints. So this is, this is the question you've got to ask of me, and, and I, I admit guilt if I'm not doing this because this was a self-evaluation and a very sobering experience. Number one, how am I equipping you to have a thorough grasp of the gospel so that you can clearly and boldly share it? Question you've got to ask. How am I doing that? Number two, how am I equipping and modeling to you what it means to love your neighbors? Number four, number three, how am I equipping you to integrate your faith in the workplace? And number five, how am I doing and equipping you to see yourself as a missionary where you are and to understand the worldview and culture in which we live? That's the challenge of today's culture. In the past, pastors could have little classes and teach people theology and doctrine. I would much rather do that. That's up my alley. But in our culture today, I've got to be equipping you guys, and I've got to be learning how to do these things. How do you clearly present the gospel? How do you love your neighbor, seek the good of the city? How do you integrate your faith in the workplace, and how do you see yourself as a missionary where you are? And that's a whole different approach to doing church than just having some classes to where we learn some stuff. We've got to take what we learn out and have it impactful in every part of our lives.